Well, I'd like to say hello to everyone at all of our locations, all the way up in Saratoga, over east in Greenbush, up in Half Moon, and at Latham. We're so glad that you're in worship today. Now, as you know, we're in a series right now called Powerful Signs. And I'll tell you, I think all of us would agree God has been stretching us and challenging us and really spurring us on to all he designed us to be through this series. And I'm very excited about returning right back to that series and picking it up again next weekend. But today, we have a very, very special treat. In just a moment, I'm going to introduce our speaker this weekend. But before I do, I want to read today's passage from the Bible. So if you have a Bible of your own, I would urge you to find Luke chapter 10, verses 25 to 37. This is the classic story of the Good Samaritan. It'll also be on the screens, I think, if you'd like to follow along from there. Here's how Luke's account reads. Chapter 10, starting in verse 25. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law, he replied. How do you read it? He answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. You have answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this, and you will live. But he wanted to justify himself. So he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? In reply, Jesus said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he fell into the hands of robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So to a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him pass by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was. And when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, took him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day, he took out two silver coins and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. Jesus told him, Go and do likewise. May God bless the reading of his holy and amazing word. Dr. D. Michael Lindsay is originally from Jackson, Mississippi. He earned his undergraduate degree with the highest of honors at Baylor University and then earned graduate degrees at Princeton Seminary and Oxford University, and then later his Ph.D. in sociology from Princeton 
University. From 2006 to 2011, he served on the faculty of Rice University in uh, the Houston area of Texas. And then, starting in 2011, since 2011, has served as the president, the eighth president, I might say, of Gordon College, a wonderful Christian college just north of Boston in Wenham, Massachusetts. He and his wife, Rebecca, reside there on the campus in Wenham with their three daughters, Elizabeth, Caroline, and Emily. Now, I would want you to know that uh, Dr. Lindsay, so many accomplishments, but he is a fine author. He has over two dozen scholarly publications uh, to his credit, and uh, one book, Faith in the Halls of Power, a Pulitzer Prize-nominated book listed in Publisher Weekly's list of best books of 2007. His latest book, View from the Top, is the largest ever interview-based study of platinum-level leaders. In this study, he interviewed top-level leaders, uh, including former Presidents Carter and and Bush, and hundreds of CEOs from the top corporations in America, along with not-for-profits. He has indeed become an expert on uh, religion, culture, and leadership, and is often looked to for guidance, advice, and perspective in those areas. One of the things that I really appreciate, Debbie and I appreciate personally about him, is the investment he makes in students in mentoring them uh, in, on the Gordon campus. Uh, he has invested heavily in our daughter, Allie, and our son is currently a presidential fellow and serves in the president's office and is learning a whole lot about leadership. But you know, for our for our purposes today, more important, in fact, I would say far more important than all of those things is the fact that Michael Lindsay is a committed and passionate follower of Jesus Christ. But would you agree, isn't it just cool to have some smart people on our side? Isn't that kind of a cool thing? And we get the treat of having him come and share God's word with us today. So let me ask you, church, would you put your hands together and join me in giving the warmest welcome to Dr. D. Michael Lindsay as he comes to share God's word with us today. God bless you, Dr. Lindsay. God bless you. I just wish my parents were here for that introduction. My goodness, Pastor Rex says, incredibly kind and generous. And uh, I bring you greetings from Boston and the Christian community at Gordon College. I'm blessed to be able to have a wonderful campus with uh, student leaders like the ones leading us in worship today. And it's been a, a great joy and blessing to know many young people from this church. And thank you so much for sharing them with us because they bless our lives in significant ways. As Rex was mentioning, uh, I've been there for five years, and um, when I was, I was named the president at Gordon, there were lots of people who had uh, questions, and I would go and introduce myself and say, hi, I'm Michael Lindsay, I'm serving as the president of Gordon. 
And uh, I could tell that they had questions that they wanted answered. And they would look at me and they'd want to know sort of what's my vision for the college or maybe what it is that excites me about where the college is going. I could always tell, particularly when I talked to the grandparents of uh, our students, there was another question in the back of their mind. Exactly how old are you? You know, it's interesting because my path to Gordon is a very unconventional path. And uh, one of the people that uh, I got to know through the search process is a man named Tom Phillips. Now, Tom Phillips is an extraordinary um, leader in the Christian community. He actually led Chuck Colson to Christ back in the 1970s, served as the CEO of Raytheon, a defense contractor based in Boston. And a lot of people were making uh, news of the fact that I was the youngest college president uh, at a ranked school. And uh, Tom uh, pulled me aside one day and he said, you know, everybody's sort of, you know, interested in the fact that you're very young. And he said, but really, I want to know one simple thing. What took you so long? And it's actually an interesting story. And this particular passage, the most famous of Jesus's parables, is a very important part of my own journey of how neighbors move us. Jesus is what we might call a metaphorical theologian. He's not the kind of theologian that we think of from church history. Folks like Augustine or Aquinas, John Calvin, Martin Luther, those were conceptual theologians who made their arguments and their points like a rhetorical, logical argument. Jesus, instead, makes his point by telling stories. There are 39 different parables recorded in the four Gospels where we get Jesus' life and ministry. 28 of those parables are recorded here in the Gospel of Luke. Luke is a very interesting writer because, to the best of our knowledge, he's the only Gentile who wrote a book of the Bible. And he wrote not one book, but he wrote two the Gospel of Luke, and the book of Acts. And together they comprise a quarter of all the New Testament. And Luke tended to focus in his account of Jesus' life and ministry by telling us stories of folks who sometimes were forgotten, much like the Gentiles, left on the side. That's why you get the parable of the prodigal son in Luke's Gospel. You get the parable of the lost sheep in Luke's Gospel. You get the parable of the Good Samaritan. And it's interesting because when you look at the ways in which different biblical authors took different parts of Jesus' life and ministry, you can see the ways in which Luke is different. For example, Matthew begins his gospel by giving a genealogy of Jesus' life and ministry. And he traces Jesus' genealogy all the way back to Abraham, the father of the Jews. Luke also begins his gospel with a genealogy, but he traces Jesus' genealogy not just back to Abraham, but actually back to Adam, the father of all humanity. You see, Luke's account paid a lot of attention to Gentiles, you and I, how we would respond to the message of Jesus. Kenneth Bailey is a cultural anthropologist who wrote a book a number of years ago called Jesus Through Middle Eastern Eyes. And he taught me a lot about this particular passage, which is undoubtedly the most famous of all of Jesus' parables and teachings. An expert in the law stands up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asks, what must I do to inherit eternal life? It's interesting because Jesus doesn't answer his question. Instead, he simply responds with another question. 
What's written in the law? Jesus replied. How do you read it? The lawyer then answers Jesus' question. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. After the lawyer answers Jesus' question, Jesus is going to answer the lawyer's question. You've answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this, and you will live. It's very interesting because Jesus was not just a good storyteller, but actually he was a masterful teacher. So oftentimes he responded to people's questions by asking them questions, not giving them the immediate answer. I don't know how it is in your own spiritual journey, but I oftentimes ask the Lord lots of questions and get really frustrated when he doesn't give me the answers that I'm expecting. And yet if you look at the life and ministry of Jesus, you can see many times he responded not with the answer, but with another question. Because he's trying to move us along to a place of greater faithfulness. The lawyer answered the question in a very interesting way. You know, it's interesting because back in Jesus' day, if you were asked to quote something from the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, you would actually quote them as they appear in canonical order. Now, you and I know the first five books of the Bible would be Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Now, here's the interesting thing. The command to love your neighbor as yourself, that actually appears in Leviticus 19. And the command to love the Lord your God with all your heart, your mind, soul, and strength, that appears in Deuteronomy 6. So if the lawyer is going to give the answer in the way that you should answer the question back in Jesus' day, he'd actually say, the, the passage from, Deuter- uh, from Leviticus before the passage from Deuteronomy. That's not what he does. He reverses it. Why? Because the lawyer realizes you cannot love your neighbor until you first love God. We get our relationship with God right, and then that helps set the relationship with other people. And Jesus appreciates and praises the fact that the lawyer got the answer right. He says, you've answered correctly. Do this and you will live. Scripture goes on to say, but the lawyer wanted to justify himself. And so he says, and who is my neighbor? That's interesting because Jesus is now going to tell us a story. But at the very end of that story, Jesus actually poses a question back to the lawyer. So he doesn't really answer the question, who is my neighbor? Instead, He says to the lawyer down in verse 36, which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? The lawyer's then going to answer Jesus' question. Jesus then will answer the lawyer's question. It's a series of dialogues that Jesus has with the lawyer trying to make a much larger point about how we think about the gospel. Back in Jesus' day, there are different kinds of people that are out there. And Jesus begins to tell this story, a man, about a man who falls into the hands of robbers. Man's going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he falls into the hands of robbers. Now right here, you need to know, as Jesus is telling this story, everybody has a picture in their mind. Why? Because they know this path. This path that goes up from the hill on Jerusalem down to Jericho. It's a journey of about 17 miles. It's a, a twisting, winding route, and it's a dangerous route. So dangerous that it was called the way of blood. Why is it called the way of blood? Because 
Robbers would lie in wait around the corner, waiting for somebody to come. Then they'd go and beat them up, take their money, and folks would be left bleeding and sometimes half dead. So when Jesus is telling the story about a man who falls in the hands of robbers, and the robbers strip him of his clothes, beat him, went away, leaving him half dead, everybody in the audience really identifies with this man, the victim. And because Jesus is speaking to a Jewish audience, they automatically assume he's one of their own. He is a fellow Jew. And that's an important data point to keep in mind. So everybody assumes the man who falls into the hands of robbers is a fellow Jew. Jesus then is going to be able to tell a story that involves three characters. Starting at verse 31, he says, A priest happened to be going down the same road. When he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So to a Levite, when he came to that place and saw him, he passed by on the other side. Now, let me just pause here and say, back in Jesus' day, they didn't have television. They didn't have the things that entertain you and me. They told stories. It was an oral culture where you would pass along jokes and funny stories and teachable moments by sharing a story around the campfire. And when Jesus tells the story, first off, about a priest and then about a Levite, everybody assumes they know who the next figure is. The reason is because back in the ancient Near East, there were three classes of people who provided the services at the local church or temple. You had the priests, the people who had been professionally trained to be able to perform the religious ceremonies. You had their assistants, who were the Levites, people who had been set apart but had not gone through the formal training. And then you had Jewish laymen, ordinary people who went to the temple weekly and would somehow assist with offerings and other activities that would take place in the service. Now, the priest who's coming down, what you may not be aware of is that back in Jesus' day, priests typically did not walk. They were considered very um, uh, honored and revered and respected. And so they typically traveled by chariot. And so the priest who's going down, he's actually being carried down as he goes along the way. Now, that's an important note because the priest very easily could have helped pick up the man and just put him on his chariot. And everybody knows that hearing Jesus' story, but you and I might miss that little detail. The priest, however, passes by on the other side. Why does he do that? Why do we do that? Back in Jesus' day, if you were a priest, there were a lot of guidelines you had to follow. And one of them was that a priest someone who provided the religious services of a community could not come in contact with a dead body. If the person did come in contact with a dead body, they actually would have to go through a week-long purification ritual. And the regular ebb and flow of a priest back then is that they would work at the temple for a week and then they'd be off for a week to be with their family. They didn't work, for example, Monday to Friday and then have the weekend off. They would be on for a week and then off a week. So as this priest is going from Jerusalem down to Jericho, he's on his way to see his family. And he knows the Torah very well and knows that if he comes into contact with a, a, what ends up being a dead body, he's going to have to turn around, go back up to Jerusalem during his week off and go through that purification ritual. But 
so also is his entire family. So all those people that are back home, they're going to have to now come to the temple, and they have to go through this purification ritual. And so he makes a judgment call. He says, you know what? There are lots of people who come on this road, and they are not bound by the same purification rituals than I am. And so anybody else, they can come by and take care of this guy, but I can't. And so what does he do? He passes by on the other side. Coming behind him is a Levite. Now, what you may not be aware is that most people would have assumed that when Jesus is talking about a Levite who's falling behind a priest, it's probably the assistant to that priest. So this guy, who's the assistant, the Levite, he notices that his boss passes by on the other side. And like I said, he's not gone through formal theological training. And so he naturally assumes, oh, you know what? The boss man, he knows something that maybe I don't know. He passed by on the other side, so I'm going to do the same. So he passes by on the other side. Now, everybody in the story, as Jesus is telling the story, everybody assumes they know where this story is going. It's sort of like um, if we were to tell a story today, and I introduce a character, a stock character, and the first character is the mayor of our city. And then the next character I introduce is the governor of our state. Then the next character we're going to automatically assume is going to be the president of the country, right? It's an order of progression. So also, when Jesus tells the story and the first character is a priest and the next character is a Levite, everybody in the audience assumes, oh, we know who's coming up next. It's going to be the Jewish layman. And so they're sort of getting excited, as is this lawyer. Why? Because he wanted to justify himself. So he's already starting to feel commended by Jesus. He's the guy who's going to be the archetypal hero when Jesus tells the story about the good neighbor. Do you ever find yourself in a situation where you're sitting there and people are starting to talk and you realize they're speaking positively about somebody and you're pretty confident they're talking about you. It's a nice feeling, you know. It's a great moment when you're sitting there in the room and they're saying, oh, this person really came through for us and, man, I don't know what we would have done. And they're going on and on. And you're thinking, yeah, I'm pretty good. Yeah, that's right. That's exactly what's happening in this audience where Jesus is speaking. But verse 33, Jesus says, But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came to where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. Now, what the Bible translation doesn't tell you is that just as soon as Jesus uses the S word, Samaritan, the whole audience gasp because they can't believe the hero of this story is going to be one of those. The Samaritan comes to the man. He, he goes to him and bandages up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. In this way, he's sort of making up for what the Levite could have done, because that's exactly the kind of activity, practical need that he, the Levite could have provided. And then he puts the man not on his chariot, but on his own donkey, and he carries him to an inn to take care of him. 
The next day, he pulls out two silver coins and gives them to the innkeeper. And then he says, look after him, and when I return, I'm going to reimburse you for any extra expense you might have. Now, what you don't know is that this is really an act of tremendous generosity because he doesn't know what the total bill is going to be. But back in Jesus' day, they didn't always have the hospitality guarantee that we expect of our Holiday Inn. If you couldn't pay your hotel bill at the end of the stay, you know what they did to you? They threw you in jail. So this man says, you know, if I'm going to take care of this guy, I'm going to go all the way. And so he says to the innkeeper, if he's got a bill when he, it's time for him to leave, you let me know and I'll settle it. So you've got this story of a priest, a Levite, and a Samaritan. And as Jesus begins to tell this story, the lawyer gets really uncomfortable. Because you see, he was asking the question because he wanted to feel better about himself. He naturally assumed there's one of two answers that Jesus could give when he says, and who is my neighbor? He could use the Old Testament injunction where basically the neighbor is going to be your fellow Jew. So somebody who's just like you. Somebody who's your kin or your family member. Or Jesus might push the, push the envelope just a little bit, and it's going to refer to the person who lives nearby. What the Old Testament would refer to as the stranger, the stranger or alien who lives within your gate. Basically, your next door neighbor. That's basically the only people that the lawyer thinks Jesus could be talking about. But here, he's talking about the story of a Samaritan taking care of a Jew. Which of these threes do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? The lawyer can't even bring himself to say the word Samaritan. So deep is the resentment between these two groups. He can only obliquely refer to the man by saying, the one who showed mercy. Jesus then says, go and do likewise. I mentioned that this particular passage of Scripture had been so important in my own journey to Boston. Ten years ago, if you had asked me, you know, did I think I would be serving as the president of Gordon College, I would have said, no way, you're crazy. At the time, Rebecca, my wife, and I uh, were just making the move from Princeton, New Jersey, where I had been in grad school, to Houston, Texas. Now, Rebecca, she's a native Texan. She grew up in Dallas. And she says that there's a lasso that gets around the neck of a native Texan. And the further they are from the state line, the tighter the pull back to the motherland. When we were living in Princeton, New Jersey, that lasso was pretty tight. And so when I was given the opportunity to join the faculty at Rice, living in Houston, close to both of our families. She was so excited, and it was just great. We were really active in our church. I was teaching Sunday school. Things were going great for me at the university. Rebecca had given birth to our twin daughters, Caroline and Emily. We loved our little house. Everything was just perfect. I mean, it was really a wonderful season in our life. I fully expected that I would be at Rice for the rest of my career. We were very content and very happy. One morning in October of 2010, I got a phone call. 
It was from a man named Price Harding who lived in Atlanta. And he called and said, Michael, uh, I'm calling because I'm assisting the search committee at Gordon College to seek their new president. Now, over the course of my career, I had lots of search consultants call me because, as Rex mentioned, I spent 10 years of my life interviewing business leaders and government leaders and folks in positions of responsibility. And so oftentimes, search consultants or headhunters, they were looking for ideas or recommendations of people who could do a job. So as he's talking to me, I sort of begin to tune him out and then start going through my mental Rolodex of names that I might be able to refer him, you know, to be able to give him some names that he could use. So after he sort of stopped speaking, I said, okay, Price, I've got three names for you. And he said, no, no, no. Did, did you hear what I was saying? Truth be told, I had no idea what he had said because I was thinking in my brain what I was going to say. And I said, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. But listen, here are the people you need. And he said, Michael, I'm calling because we're actually interested in seeing if you would apply for the job. And I said, oh, you know, Price, uh, thank you very much. I appreciate that. But, uh, you know, there's my wife and the lasso and everything. We can't leave the state line. And I said, you know, I'm very honored. And I, I love uh, Gordon. I have great respect for it. But uh, I think they have snow up there. And I'm from Mississippi. You know, this is not what I'm used to. And I said, you know, I would love at some point in time to serve in college administration. That would be an exciting opportunity. And I'd love to maybe consider it in 10 to 15 years. But right now, I'm just really busy doing other things. He said, well, would you at least pray about it? <laughs> well, what am I supposed to say? <laughs> I said, yes, I will pray about it. But I got to tell you, I was not praying very hard. So over the next couple of weeks, it'd be the kind of thing where I'd say, oh, God, please help those people at Gordon College. And if you want me to be open to it, I am. But, you know, you really got to make it obvious, God. And uh, I really don't think I'm the right person, but help them find the right person. Several weeks pass, and uh, I get another telephone call at the office, and uh, it's my mom calling. And I can tell from the very first word that she says that something is wrong. It was November 2nd, 2010. And she said, Michael, I've got some very bad news. A couple of hours ago, your 32-year-old cousin, Trent, was killed in a car accident. The moment she said that sentence, it was as if all of the air came out of my body. I'm an only child, and Trent was like my little brother. I had performed the wedding ceremony for he and his wife. He left her behind and three young kids. He had been driving to work that morning, and uh, he was going down a highway. And as he was going down the highway, it had been raining that morning, there was a highway patrolman who hydroplaned off of the interstate onto the ditch. And my cousin saw this and pulled over to the side and got out of his car to go sort of check in on this highway patrolman and see how he was doing. As he was helping the highway patrolman get out of his car, there was an 18-wheeler who was coming down the highway, and the truck driver slammed on his brakes, and when he did that, the rig part of his tractor-trailer swung around, and it struck my cousin and killed him instantly. 
the family asked me to deliver the eulogy at his funeral. It was the hardest talk I've ever had to give. I loved him very much. Um, after the funeral, we loaded up the kids in the car and started driving back to Houston. The kids fell asleep, and um, the car was quiet. And as I was driving down the interstate, I began to think about Trent and his life. It was about six weeks before Christmas, so I began thinking about, wonder what he was going to get his kids for Christmas that year. I wonder what the next big promotion he was hoping he would get at work. wonder what he thought he might be doing in, I don't know, 10 or 15 years. And in that moment, I had that thought. I recalled that conversation that had happened a month earlier where this guy called me and asked me if I'd be open to something in Boston. I realized that I said to many people that I always wanted to be led by God, but truth of the matter is that when I was confronted with an opportunity to be led by God, I didn't take him up on that. There were all kinds of reasons I had come up in my mind of why I shouldn't necessarily go down this path, but the real honest answer is that I was not willing to be yielded to God. It took a modern-day Good Samaritan parable in my own life to help me to see the ways in which God might move us. Driving down that road on that Sunday afternoon, I confessed to the Lord that I had not been obedient and said, Lord, I really do want to yield my life to you. And so, if you want us to move to Gordon College, I want to be open to that. I genuinely want to be led by you. I also made a pledge that if, in fact, God did call us to Gordon, that I would tell the true story about my calling there and about how a good neighbor actually moved us. I make good on that promise this weekend. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? The lawyer replied, the one who showed mercy. Jesus then said, go and do likewise. May it be true in our lives. Let's pray. Father, we really do want to be led by you. I don't know what you're doing in the lives of the folks who are here today. I don't know what you're calling each of us to do. But in our better moments, God, we genuinely want to be open to your leading. So we pray, Father, that in the days ahead, you would take our hands and work through them. You would take our feet and walk through them. Take our words and speak through them. 
Take our hearts and set them afire that we might be changed people having encountered your word for us today. This we pray in Christ's name. Amen.